so we are going to be in Ephesians, I mean not Ephesians, Philippians, once again. And we'll, we've, we've made it to chapter 3, so if you would turn there, I'll go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again, I thank you, God, I thank you even for the songs that we sang and how they line up so well with your scripture and what what you have for us today, God, I ask you that uh, that this message would be clear and concise and speak to the hearts of your people, Lord. I, I pray, God, that my inadequacy would not hinder the message from going forth, but it, that it would hinder me from getting glory and that it would give you all the glory, Lord. I pray for those that are here, that you would help focus, help open our hearts, our minds to hear your word. I pray, God, if there's any here who do not know you, that you would today would be the day of salvation for them, that you would open their eyes and, and allow them to see truth, allow them just to see you. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So just a couple of weeks ago, we got to witness the testimony of two godly men. Um, who were serving the kingdom of God by ministering to Paul and to the churches, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Uh, we, we saw examples of what it looks like to be selfless, what it looks like to serve Christ, to serve the kingdom of God, um, and to put others before yourself, to put God before all. Of course, before that, we saw the reason they needed to minister to Paul um, was that he was under heavy per- persecution. And remember, he's in prison to the household of Caesar. So he is, Paul is in prison um, to Caesar at this time. Um, we've seen Paul's great encouragement throughout this book. This is one of the most encouraging books that, that Paul wrote or letters that Paul wrote. And his encouragement is to, to, to the church to keep contending for the faith, continue on contending for the faith and finding joy in all of these things. That's kind of the theme of this whole book, and you're going to see it again in today's passage. Joy, having joy in Christ, rejoicing in Christ. In his reminder, we've seen this far, that God works all things for his glory It's evident, it will become more evident toward the end of the book that all of these things that are happening are ultimately going to be for the glory of God. And so if you'll take a look at Philippians chapter 3, we're going to, we'll start right in verse 1. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious. But for you it is safe. Rejoice in the Lord. Here it is again. Rejoice. It is sometimes, it is sometimes difficult to rejoice or to find joy in our circumstances. Right? I know everybody in here has had this struggle. To find joy in circumstances sometimes, looking at the circumstances alone, is actually impossible. But here's the key to having joy. Here's the key, Christian, to having joy in whatever your circumstances are. And that is 
He says, rejoice in the Lord. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on in your family, in your job, in your relationships, the key to having joy has nothing to do with all of those things. They're hard. We're living in a cursed world. You're going to have circumstances come and hit you in the face. Completely unexpected things or expected if you, if you haven't experienced that, you're probably extremely young. And even our children have experienced these things, right? But that's not where the joy is found. He says rejoice in the Lord. Not in your circumstances. In the Lord. See, God transcends your circumstances, right? He is above all of this stuff that's going on. And He can use it for His glory and his purpose, and ultimately for your good. Turn over to Psalm chapter 9. Psalm 9. David understood tough circumstances. Some of them he got himself into. Some of them he didn't. But all the time, there was many, many times in David's lives, if you look at his circumstance, it it wasn't good. It didn't look good. But he says this, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart, and I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Your circumstances do not define you. If you're a Christian, Christ defines you. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 16, Paul says this, Rejoice always. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing in everything. Give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always. Rejoice in the Lord. There are times when we fail in this. And I was thinking about us as Christians, as as. Um, even as our church here, I, th- I believe our church has a higher sense of discernment than many other people. And I, I don't want to sound arrogant about that, but I, I believe that about you. I believe that about us. I believe that as, as a group, we see what's going on in the world. And there's times when this makes it hard to be joyous, right? Um, it seems like we're the only ones that can see it sometimes. There, I don't know if you've read or looked at um, what many, many, many people in the world are saying, there is a delusion out there. I mean, it's incredible what people believe and what they will fall for and what they're going to follow and this and that. And, and we're sitting there thinking, are we crazy? 
we're becoming the minority. Just, you know, common sense isn't so common anymore. And when you can see all of this, especially in our country where our freedoms are being eroded away, quickly eroded away, and, you, and it's, it's hard to find joy in this. But we need to find joy in Christ during these times. The lost world does not to see the only they, they, the, the lost world does not need to see the only people with hope moping around like they have no hope. Our hope's not in this country. Our hope's not in our freedoms. It's not in government for sure, thank the Lord. Right? I don't want to see those things lost any more than anybody else, but the reality is it doesn't matter ultimately on whether or not we have joy. Uh, if you were here this morning, Paul's doing some amazing teaching on um, like the scientific revolution, but really it's because of the Protestant Reformation. And you study that very often, very much, very deep. You find out real quick those guys' circumstances were difficult. I mean, he, he talked about two or three today that were burned at the stake. It's hard to find joy, right? When you're being tied to a pole with a pile of wood underneath you. But guess what? And, and we, only, we only talk about the, the famous ones. There were literally thousands of Christians killed for their faith. And they would go to that stake singing hymns. How is this possible? They had their eyes fixed on the one that transcends all of these circumstances. We need to be the same way. We have eternal life. If you are in Christ, you have eternal life. Shouldn't we show a little joy in this world? Especially, I mean, when you compare our circumstances to those, even to Paul's here, we don't have it near as bad as they do. And no matter what happens, we need to be the one that people say, how can you, how, how can you be so happy? How, how are you so joyous when the world's falling around? You know, Timothy, Paul told Timothy to be ready always to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. If you're walking around moping around all the time, nobody's ever going to ask about that hope. We need to show our joy. We need to have joy because our eyes are fixed on Christ. We need to show that joy in the way that we go about our daily lives, the way we go about our business, the way we go about our... What is that? That's a new noise. I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> what is it? I am going to find joy in this strange noise. <laughs> But it is going to distract me. Sorry. Um, yeah, so, so we need to have this joy in, in these circumstances. Um, I really lost my train of thought here. <laughs> what is that? Give me a second. I'll, I'll gain it back. So verse 2. Let's, let's move on. Verse 2. Thank you. He says, beware of dogs. 
Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. So he's saying rejoice in Christ. Have joy in Christ. And then he's like, but here, here's, don't forget though, just because we are, our, our hope transcends our circumstances doesn't mean the circumstances aren't there. And so he's going to give a warning here. Beware. And he calls, he says the dogs and the evil workers. And Paul is actually using irony here with the word dogs. The irony here is that Paul, he's calling the Jews, what he's talking about is the Judaizers. And you remember from Galatians, if you were here when we went through Galatians, or if you've read Galatians and studied it, you know that it seemed like Paul was followed a lot by legalistic Jews coming in trying to bring the law back in to grace, like trying to mix the law and grace, and you have to do these things to earn favor with God and all of that. And so that's what he's talking about here. And, and he calls the, so he calls these Jewish men dogs, which was actually the term before this time that Jews would have used for Gentiles. Gentiles were considered dogs, and the Jews were considered superior within Israel. And yet, so Paul is reversing it here. And I thought, oh, how Christ can turn the tables. How Christ can change your title, your name, your position. How many of us were once something else? Right? I think if you're a Christian, that would be all of us. And how has Jesus came in and he changed us from the dogs into the chosen. He changed us from the dogs into the highly favored in Christ. And that's what he does. That's the business that he's in. He takes the street rats and puts them a place at the king's table. And if you're in Christ, that's exactly your testimony in one way or another. That's how it works. If you can... Uh, so, so Paul was constantly fighting these Judaizers. Now, it looks like maybe... Philippi hadn't experienced this yet. But he's saying, they're probably coming. They seem to go everywhere I go. It seemed to be his lot. Um, and so he's saying, beware. And I was just, I was, as I was thinking about this, praying about this, I thought, what is it? Why was Paul being... Annoyed, maybe, with this, or why? Why was this so constant in the work of Paul, in in his established churches, and as he preached the gospel? Why was there always people coming behind him with these legalistic ideals? And I thought, well, that's really actually very simple. The reality is that man craves legalism. Why does man crave legalism so bad? Because man craves credit. We want to be able to say, yes, I did it. I, I mean, you just watch. There will be people get completely upset and turned all inside out because whatever job they do or whatever happens and somebody gives miscredit. Man, when I took, when I was in my master's degree and we had to write you have to write a lot of papers when you do masters and 
I'm writing all these papers. And the citation. We spent more time learning how to properly cite something than we did on how to write. Like, maybe you should teach me how to write this before I actually learn how to cite it. And it was extremely important to get those names in the right order. Who did the most work? They have to go first. I was like, I was just thinking, nobody ever actually reads the citations, do they? I don't, you know. But man craves credit. And we want credit for our salvation. It's a fact. Isaiah and I were in Home Depot. It's kind of a strange conversation. Me and him are talking into some, we're getting into, you know, some of the deeper things that we'll talk about sometimes with angels and Genesis 6. And don't worry, I'm not going there. But we're having this conversation in Home Depot. And some guy walks by and you can tell he's acting like he's shopping, but he's really not looking at what is right there at all. And finally he walks by and he says, hey, can I say something? So we start with this conversation. And he talks about that for a little bit. And then we go in and, and he, he explains that he, he was actually a uh, raised Orthodox Jew. He was is Israelite. And um, he was raised with a lot of the traditions that the Jews had. Then he went to Assembly of God for a while and then Baptist and he landed as a Jehovah's Witness. And so Isaiah and I are talking to him, and it's kind of like, and I'm just thinking constantly, okay, how am I going to get into the gospel? How am I going to get into the gospel? Isaiah is thinking the same thing. We're having this conversation, and we're trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to get this turned off of this angel thing to the gospel? And we do. We get it there. And he really is adamant that he wants to be like us. He wants us to think, hey, we're pretty much the same. We're just seeing just this little bit of difference. And what seems like a little bitty difference is actually all of the difference. It is actually huge. The difference was this guy wanted a little bit of credit, and we want none. We realize we have none. We can't get any because if we try to get a little bit of the credit, if we get part of it, if God says, okay, I'll give you 1%, I'm going to take care of 99 all you got to do is that 1%. Guess what? You're going to hell. Because you don't have enough good in you to do 1% good. You can't save yourself 1%. God has to do it all or it's not going to get done. And that's what this guy didn't understand. He was saying he was saying you got to first you got to go you got to take the first step. Well actually he said you have to walk the first mile. So this guy's wanting more than 1%, right? He, and, and so he, just, he, was, he was doing a lot of talking. We're listening. And he says, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you can't be saved. I was like, really? So God can't save an alcoholic? No, he has to quit drinking first. Then God can save him because God will see that his heart is, is pure. And I was like, really? And I said, I said, so what about a political leader who's persecuting Christians? And he goes, no, God can't save him. <laughs> I thought he would catch that. He didn't. I said, um, well, what about the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul had no part of his salvation. He was on his way to arrest Christians, bring them to prison, and probably kill them or at least lock them up. 
And God knocked him off his horse. He stopped him in the middle of the road, cast blindness on him, and turned him around. Who did the work? God did. You think the Apostle Paul is going to try to take credit for his salvation? We're actually going to see in a minute. He takes no credit. But man craves credit. The the depraved nature of man wants the glory, wants at least a little bit of it. The reality is they want all of it, but there's certain limits. And so what we see here is Paul calls them dogs and evil workers. Those that are trying to take the glory from God for salvation are dogs and evil workers. That's what Paul says. That's what the Holy Spirit has said. That's what God has said in his words. They're dogs and evil workers. We cannot compromise in this area. Isaiah had to go. Lena, she was probably like, where are you? Which we were in there for like a couple of hours. So it's a long trip to Home Depot. He left and he asked me this morning how it went. And I said, you know, we didn't talk a whole lot longer. But he kept wanting me to just kind of be like, yeah, we're pretty much the same. He, he kept saying it like, yeah, we're about the same. And I'm like, we're really not. I see that it's close in your mind. But who gets the credit is of utmost importance. We cannot compromise in this area. And we must keep a watch out for similar Judaizers. Paul was dealing with Jews that wanted to bring them back under the law. We have a whole new set in our lives today. Jehovah's Witness would be one example. But we have other sects of Christianity or Christendom that want to do the same thing. Even within what would be considered orthodox denominations, there is much credit being taken away from God in the way that people speak, the way they talk about their salvation and the way that things are handled. And we cannot compromise on that area. God deserves 100% of the credit for our salvation. And then he takes another step. He says, beware of the mutilation. And this is another rebuke to legalism. Um, he's referring, what he's talking about is circumcision. Right? But he won't call it circumcision um, because, as we'll see in the next verse, it is not true circumcision. What he's saying is, all you're doing is a hacking away on the outside. It's a mutilation of your body. That's all you're doing. It's, it's a... You're trying to look superior. You're trying to put your confidence in that of the flesh, in what you are doing, just like they had done for years and years and years. He won't call it circumcision because it's actually far from what God instituted with Abraham back in Genesis. Remember, God gave the covenant of circumcision. He gave that to Abraham. That was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. But this, what was happening in the Judaizers, what was happening in Israel, was a long ways from circumcision. See, what God gave Abraham was a picture of things to come. It was a picture of what the work of the Holy Spirit was actually going to look like in this time that Paul's writing now. It was a picture of what the work of the Holy Spirit actually looks like in our time today. But these legalists, they want to put their confidence back in the shadow. They want to put their confidence in that which was given to Abraham, which was just a type of what was to come. Not in the actual 
spiritual work that was going to happen, not in the truth. They want to put their faith in a ritual, an outside work. And in so doing, they're missing the true circumcision. Look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision. What he's saying is not these dogs. These are the, the, the actual dogs. They're putting their confidence in the mutilation of the flesh, not the true circumcision. We are the true circumcision. And there it is again. Jesus changes everything. Can you imagine being a Jew in this time and hearing Paul say, you're not the circumcision, to a staunch Jew and saying, no, 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 this Greek over here who hasn't even been physically circumcised, he is the true circumcision. He's the true one of God. That doesn't even, to a, what? We are the circumcision. You were once a bunch of dogs, but now you're the true circumcision. And those that were treated as the circumcision are now actually the dogs. Turn over to just a couple pages, Colossians 2.11. Make no mistake, us as Christians are the true circumcision. Verse two, chapter 2, verse 11 in Colossians. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The true circumcision is that of the heart. It is a removal of the flesh. Isaiah quoted it to our friend in Home Depot the other day, he said, you're missing, it's taking out the heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. All this cleaning up that you're trying to do, all you're doing is removing, it's all on the outside. It's all physical. What Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying is, you have to have a change within the heart. You have to have the flesh removed from the heart. That's what the true circumcision is. It's made without hands. What is the circumcision made without hands? It's the Holy Spirit going in and changing you from the inside so that now your desires will change. And yeah, so he was right about one thing. You can't come to Christ until you, until you have a change of mind. But guess who gives you the change of mind? It's the Holy Spirit. It's all of God. It's all of Christ. And that, that, that's why we rejoice. We can rejoice in Christ because we don't have confidence in the flesh. Because if you put confidence in the flesh, I got news for you, it is going to fail. At some point, your flesh will fail you. Probably pretty often. But if your confidence is in Christ, you can rejoice because He will not fail. You know, I was thinking, when Paul was teaching, this came to me. He was talking about the Pope and how 
the Catholic Church in that time, 1400s, 1300s, whenever that was, they, they said, if the Pope says it, it's infallible. And I was thinking about even the Apostle Paul, who was obviously Apostle, the Apostle Peter, um, the, the, those guys who wrote Scripture. Guess what? They were not infallible either. Paul probably said some things in his life that was, wasn't true. He was a man. He was fallen. He was sinful as well. Now, when he wrote it in Scripture and God ordained it as God breathed Scripture, then it became infallible. Yes, the Word of God is infallible. That's why everything Paul ever said isn't written down. But there was one. There was one who that was true about. His name was Jesus. Whatever he said was perfect. Whatever he said was infallible. And, and that's where we put our confidence. Look at verse 4. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I am more so. And so Paul is going to lay it out here how much of an Israelite he really was. And in this, we see a great deal. We see how much riches and power Paul gave up. We also see, I think we see a point being made here um, that could have been accused. And that is that you could have said, somebody could have said, well, yeah, that's, you, you don't like all this Israelite stuff because you were, you were low on the totem pole. Like somehow Paul could have been jealous of those that had prominent positions in Judaism. That could be said of Peter. If he said it. But when Paul says this, he's like, no, whatever you think you are as a Judaizer, you Judaizers coming in behind me telling me how great you are in the law, I was more. Look at what he says, verse 5 and 6. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul's saying, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I know what you're saying way more than you do. I know what it's like to be a Pharisee way more than you do. You're trying to show off to these guys. I know what those guys think of you. I was one of them. Whatever you think you are, I'm more. He was, a, he was a true Israelite with much to lose by turning to Christ. And he gave up a lot by turning to Christ. It was quite the resume. He gave up worldly possessions. You think that wasn't profitable? Paul's position on the Sanhedrin council as a Pharisee? People feared him. You think that's not profitable? You think he didn't give up political standing? It is very possible that when Paul gets arrested in Caesar's household, that he knew some of these people because of his political clout before he was saved. Have you ever thought of that? It's very possible that that happened. He was an important man in the political scheme. He gave up impressive standing religiously and politically. But look at verse 7. 
But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Look at verse 8. You, yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. It wasn't just the political power. It wasn't just the legalistic things, the religious power, or even just the financial gain. Those aren't the only things Paul gives up. He says, I count all things lost. Nothing compares to the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. He says, I count it all rubbish. I count it all as dung. It's a heap of dung that I may gain Christ. This statement, along with what you see in verse 9, and he says, and be found in him. Now, for clarity... You don't gain Christ by giving up things. That's not what he's saying. That's not how it works. The reality is that once you see the true treasure, the false treasure is exposed. Fool's gold looks impressive until compared to real gold. Right? A fake diamond may look good until it's compared to the real diamond. True, false treasure looks good until it's compared to the true treasure. And that's what he's saying here. Once Jesus has revealed who he is to you, all the other things become like false treasure. What once was important to you becomes unimportant once you find Christ. You can see that through Christians' lives everywhere. You can see that. That's what Paul's saying here. I had it all. You think you have something? I'm telling you, I had ten times what you have right now, but it's garbage compared to what I have for you right here in Christ. That's what the rich young ruler didn't understand. Right? He had all this greatness. He wanted to keep it. He just wanted to gain heaven with it. And Jesus said, sell everything you own. Give it to the poor. And he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. He wasn't willing to give up his treasure for Christ. When Christ comes into your life, when you understand who he is, when he reveals himself to you, everything else all of a sudden gets put in its place as minute. So it's like a putting off of the old and putting on the new. Right? It's getting away with this religious garbage and putting on true relationship with Christ. And it's done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul's not trying to take any of the credit. Like it was some great thing. He's not, he's not saying, look at how great I am. I gave up all that stuff. That's not his point. No, it's clear. Not having my own righteousness. And if Paul didn't have his own righteousness, how absurd is it for you to say, I do. I had a little But there's many out there that claim that very thing. You'll hear things like, well, I had to clean myself up. Kind of like what 
The guy we were talking to said, I had to take the first step. I heard one guy say, well, you have to humble yourself. What's the difference in two people that hear the gospel? Well, I humbled myself. I had to give up all these world possessions so that Christ would do his part. I, I, I. Me, me, me. But that's not the God of the Scriptures. The God of the Scriptures does it all. Period. That's what Paul says. I don't have any righteousness. It's Christ. He says that self-righteousness comes from the law. It comes from trying to keep commandments to please God. And it contrasts that which is in faith, faith in Christ. That's what we have to look for. If you want to increase your discernment, look at these things. The contrast. You cannot, it cannot mend together. You cannot have partial grace. You cannot have partial mercy. It's either all of grace, all of mercy, or none of grace. It's clear here in verse 9 where righteousness comes from, and that is from God by faith, period. There is no other way to obtain righteousness. If you hear something that says, yes, it's, it's in faith, yeah, it's faith, that God gave me faith that I would have be able to do this. That's a very common thing within Christendom. Yeah, God gave me just enough faith so that I could, or He gave me just enough grace so that I could repent. And then once I repented, then He saved me. Or it's it, there is no in between here. You're either trying to earn your own righteousness and your own salvation, or it's of God. Don't try to fall into the trap of somewhere being in the middle. There is no other way to obtain a right standing with God than through God, than through Christ, through His work, through His righteousness, through His sacrifice. And you see it. That which is of faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That's where it comes from. The punishment that we deserved. It's going to come down on us. He took the punishment on our behalf. And either he took it for you and you're in Christ... Or that punishment, when it comes down on you, will make Sodom and Gomorrah look like a vacation. He destroyed them physically. And you will spend an eternity under that same wrath. He took that for us in order to forgive those sins. The psalmist says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. And in whose spirit is no deceit. And if you believe that you're attributing to your salvation in any way, there is deceit in your spirit. Now look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. He says that I may know him. So, so far in these few verses, this is what we have from Paul. He says... 
I want to obtain the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. I want to gain Christ. I want to be found in Christ. And now he says that I may know him. Jesus. There's nothing more important in this life than to know Christ. That's it. Nothing more important than to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Because remember, the power of his resurrection is what overcomes death. The power of his resurrection is what will give us the power to be resurrected as well. As it says in verse 11, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He says in 10, fellowship of his suffering. So again, in Paul's circumstances, from what we can see, there's not much to rejoice about. He is in fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. They persecuted Christ. It's not a surprise when they're going to persecute his people. So it doesn't look like there's much to rejoice in. But when putting it in the correct perspective with Christ at the forefront, Paul can say, rejoice in Christ. Because if you're truly receiving persecution, the apostles counted, counted themselves worthy. Or they were praising God that they were counted worthy to suffer persecution for Christ's namesake. If you're receiving persecution, it means you're in Christ. You're in his sufferings with him. But Paul can also rejoice in Christ because of this. And this is the key to all of it. Our sufferings, if you're in Christ, will never be as bad as what Christ endured. And I'm not talking about the cross. I'm not talking about the physical nature of the cross. There's been other people put to death on a cross. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. But the reason our sufferings will never be as bad as what Christ endured is because when Christ was on the cross, he endured the wrath of God. And we will never have to do that. We will never even have to come close if you have put your faith in the one who did. Why? Because he poured it out on his son. However, if we're outside of Christ, then our sufferings would match that what Christ suffered. If we're outside of Christ, we will spend an eternity paying for those crimes. We'll spend an eternity paying for those sins under the wrath of God, under the judgment of God. And so, Christian, there's much to rejoice in. No matter what comes our way, no matter what the circumstances, that is worth rejoicing for. Because this is all temporary, and we'll be able to bask in His glory in a short period of time. We'll close with verse 11. He says, If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, to attain for, from the, or to obtain the resurrection from the dead, we know there will be a resurrection. Turn real quick, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. 
He says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Again, even the way we approach death, we can rejoice even in death of loved ones because we know the one who's in charge. We know this is not the end, but he says we don't want to sorrow like those who have no hope. And look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee of ours as well. This is temporary. Death has no long-term power anymore. Jesus literally come out of the grave and so will those who died in Christ. There's no, ter- there's no power in death anymore. The curse has no long-term power anymore. The victory is secure. And in that, those who are in Christ can and should rejoice. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you. God, I thank you for um, the testimony we have of Paul who showed great joy even in what appeared to be bad circumstances. And we praise you, God, that in our circumstances, we know that you can work those things out for our good. I pray, Lord, that any here that are suffering with whatever things is in their life, that you would give them comfort, that you would give them grace this morning, that you would give them a joy in Christ, that they would be able to look past that and see him. They would be able to look above their problems and see you, Lord, standing there. And I pray, God, that you would help work those things out. Teach them that they're coming for good. Teach them that the... And, and God, I pray if somebody's in sin and causing them these circumstances, that you would grant to them repentance and cause them to turn around so that they could come out of that. And in all things that we would rejoice in that. In Jesus' name. Amen.